You know, I was excited when we began the series on Abraham. I told you that. I was leadoff batter, and I, and I told you how excited I was, and apparently you all were excited as well. There was so much positive feedback to those messages that the elders decided, let's continue with the biblical story. Sure, we're leaving out a lot, Isaac and Jacob, and now we're coming to Joseph to finish out the book of Genesis. But if you could relate to Abraham as an individual with yo-yo faith, sometimes trusting in God, sometimes trying to do things in your own power and failing, if you could relate to Abraham as a believer, you will be able to relate to Joseph not so much as a believer, but as someone who experienced a lot of bumps in life, a lot of bad situations and circumstances. You're going to be able to see yourself and your life through the lens of Joseph. Joseph is really, more than anything else, a study in the sovereignty of God, as our title slide for the series of messages shows. What is the purpose of the Joseph saga, the Joseph story from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50? What is its purpose in the Bible? Remember this, the Bible is one book. Yes, we have 66 smaller books within it, but we bind them together into one volume. They all tell the same story or part of the story. Scholars and theologians call it the unfolding drama of redemption. It begins with creation. Then there's the fall in the introduction of sin. And in cursing the serpent, God gives an implicit promise to the woman that the seed of woman will bruise the serpent's head. And there begins the first promise of God regarding redemption and the coming of Messiah. Paul in Galatians says that seed that would bruise the serpent head is singular, one, and it is Christ. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the divine commentary is that the seed of woman that would bruise the serpent's head is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham was called out of the land. God was still unfolding that drama. How, would, would it be anyone, any child, any descendant of Eve? No, we would find out that it was not anyone. It would come through Abraham's line. Through you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Messiah would come through Abraham. And then Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. It would not be Ishmael, it would be Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. It would not be through Jacob, uh, through Esau, it would be through Jacob. And God narrows down the messianic line. He continues to move the story forward, biblical character after biblical character. The purpose of the Joseph saga is really important. Without Joseph, we don't have the book of Exodus. 
we will see that Joseph's family will seek refuge in Egypt from a famine, and God will preserve them there. In his sovereignty, he will preserve them. Without them in Egypt and growing in numbers, we don't have the book of Exodus opening with the people being great in number, two to three million perhaps. And Pharaoh, who did not know Joseph, a descendant of the Pharaoh, that he would come to serve, would enslave the children of Israel. Without Joseph, there would be no enslavement. Without Joseph, there would be no Passover lamb. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul writes this, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. The Passover lamb is a picture of Jesus Christ, who John the Baptist said in John 1, 29, Behold God's lamb who takes away the sin of the world. There would be no God's lamb the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was God's Passover Lamb given for us. There would be no law given at Sinai for Christ to fulfill perfectly by his holy, sinless life. Joseph serves a very important purpose. It sets the stage for everything that will happen in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua coming into the land. It'll bring us up to set, setting the stage for King David. And God would make a covenant with David that his greater son would rule forever from his throne. So as we read the scriptures for ourselves, Let's read it with an eye towards that unfolding drama of redemption. And you'll see as each message is given how God's sovereignty in the life of Joseph is really setting the stage and helping to move forward that unfolding drama of redemption. Abraham, the life of Abraham was a study in the faithfulness of God in the life of a believer. And it was characterized by a key verse Genesis 18:25 shall not the judge of all the earth do right. God did right when he called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. God did right when he made Abraham wait. God did right when he ratified a covenant with Abraham in chapter 15 after Abraham's faith was starting to waver a bit. God was right to make Abraham wait again. God was right to chastise Abraham when he tried to fulfill the promise in the flesh. God was right to give him a painful reminder with the covenant of circumcision. God was right to tell him to, after Isaac, the child of promise, was born, to send Ishmael away. God was right in that. God was right years later when he told Abraham to sacrifice his son. This is the key verse that shows us God's faithfulness. His faithfulness was always right. In Joseph's case, it's a study in the sovereignty of God in the life of a believer. Just as God was sovereign over Joseph's life, God is sovereign over your life and mine. Every aspect, every situation, every circumstance, every bump in the road of our life, God is sovereign over. 
the key verse that defines Joseph's life, Joseph himself says to his brothers in the final chapter, in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph is speaking, As for you, his eleven brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. The whole family, 70 people in all, in Egypt, rescued from a famine in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. This is what God wants to do through each believer here this morning. Preserve many people alive. He wants sovereignty over your life. He has sovereignty over your life. He wants us to submit to that sovereignty and to be used by him the way Joseph as we'll see in the coming messages, Lord willing, was used to preserve many people alive. There is from a famine. For us, we are entrusted with the gospel to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the lost and dying world. The title of today's message is God's Sovereignty Over Family Dysfunction. If there's anyone here this morning who has never experienced, even in the slightest, family dysfunction, then I have nothing to offer you, okay? You can pray for the rest of us. But this is, you can't read Genesis 37 as our brother Joey did and not notice dysfunction after dysfunction after dysfunction. In Genesis 37, God is revealed as the sovereign God who can even use evil to set the stage for his glorious plan. His plan was to save Jacob and his entire family, 70 in all. His plan would extend beyond them to a Passover lamb and to even giving his son as our Passover sacrifice for us. God, is, God can use even evil to set the stage for his glorious plan. He did it in Joseph's life, and our God does not change, the Scripture teaches. He can use evil that enters your life to set the stage for his glorious plan for you. If you take only one thing away from this morning's message, let it be this. God intends to bring good even out of all the bad that things that happen to you in your life. Trust God to do that. Even the bad things shall not the judge of all the earth do right. It's right that they enter our life. There's no injustice with God. And he will turn that evil into good, as we sang this morning. What the enemy meant for evil, our God turns to good. Our God will never fail. Our God is always victorious. This is the sovereignty of God in the life of Joseph, and it's the sovereignty of God in your life, brothers and sisters. It is no different. You will see your life through the lens of Joseph in each of the 13 messages, Lord willing, that will be preached to you. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 37 and God's sovereignty over family dysfunction under four headings. God's sovereignty over personal sin and family dysfunction. God's sovereignty over evil done against us, evil in the context 
of family dysfunction. God's sovereignty over sorrow that family dysfunction causes and God's sovereignty over everything, even the incidental things that happen to us in our life. So let's get right into this. God's sovereignty over personal sin and family dysfunction. In verse 2, Joseph, when 17 years of age, I mean, he's not a child here. He's not yet an adult. Sure, perhaps uh, he grew up faster than our teenagers today. I mean, uh, I understand uh, his father, Jacob, who was also called Israel, uh, didn't allow him to uh, partake of social media, okay? So that probably helped him to grow up a little faster. He didn't have to worry about mean tweets. When he was 17 years of age, he was pastoring the flock with his brothers, and Joseph brought back a bad report about them to his father. Now, I can't be dogmatic that this is personal sin here. The Scripture doesn't say it was. It doesn't say it wasn't. But as we read that entire chapter together, we notice some things about Joseph that his father helped fuel and grow in Joseph's heart. And I cannot help but wonder if this bad report that he brought back was to help feed his father's excessive love at the expense of his other children, to feed that excessive love that he had and favoritism that he had for Joseph. It's certainly within the realm of human nature. But God is sovereign even over actions like this. We know from the New Testament he should have spoken with his brothers first. If there was a problem, he should have talked with his brothers first. Instead, he goes and tells Jacob, God is sovereign even over the sin in our life. He's not responsible for it. We are. But he allows it. And he will take even our sin and bring glory to himself and he will turn it to good. Sometimes he uses our sins to chastise us and bring about righteous behavior and sanctification and the production of Christ's character and the fruit of the Spirit in us. God is sovereign over personal sin. God is sovereign over parental favoritism, parental dysfunction. Israel, his name was changed to Israel in chapter 32 of Genesis. His name was Jacob, which literally means uh, one who grabs a heel or a heel grabber, a heel catcher. But it came to symbolize a usurper, one who usurps or takes the place, the rightful place of another. He wrestled with God all night. And finally, God touches his hip and dislocates his hip and then changes his name to Israel, which is understood in different ways. It could be the prince of God or God's prince, but it could also be God rules. It has like a double meaning. We, th we think of J Jacob, oh, Israel, I'm the prince of God, but no, it had another meaning. God just ruled over you in that wrestling match. 
Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. He was the first of two sons of Rachel, the young lady that he loved above all others, but the Lord had closed her womb. And Joseph finally is born to Rachel after quite a number of other sons are born to Leah and to Rachel's handmaid and to Leah's handmaid. Finally, the Lord remembers Rachel and opens her womb and Joseph is born. And then Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin, is born and in giving birth, Rachel dies in childbirth. Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that his father loved him more than all his brothers. And for this reason, because of that parental dysfunction, they hated him. And they couldn't even speak to him. They were so embittered against him. It wasn't his fault that his father loved him more. I'm sure he tried to ingratiate himself to his father by bringing bad reports. But... They couldn't even speak to him on friendly terms. They were so embittered against him. There's God's sovereignty over even our own personal foolishness. Joseph had a dream. Now, these brothers already don't like him, and he has this dream. He's 17 years old. He's not 12 now. He told it to his brothers. They hated him even more. He said to them, your sheaves bowed down to my sheaf. you got to understand something. In those days, birth order was important. The eldest brother would carry on the patriarchy of the family, not the second youngest brother. They hated him even more. They said to him, are you going to reign over us? Or are you going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. This was foolish on his part. This went against every cultural norm. This would be like one of your children or your grandchildren saying to you, you're not going to tell me what to do anymore. I'm in charge in this house. You will do what I say. How would that fly? You can't wait to get home and hear that, right? Of course not. But this is what Joseph just did to his brothers. He went against every cultural norm. He said, we're not going to do things the way the rest of society does things. We're going to do things my way. This is basically what he's saying. This is the way it would have come across. My grandmother would say he had a lot of chutzpah to tell them this dream that he had. But it doesn't stop there. It's a repeated foolishness. He had another dream and related it to his brothers once again and said, Lo, I've still had another dream. And behold, the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. I, I mean, this is poking him in the eye again, a second time. And God is sovereign over that. He allowed that to happen. He was going to use this to... Help set the stage to bring about the salvation of Jacob and his brothers from a famine. 
and eventually the redemption that would come through Christ Jesus. He didn't just do it once. He didn't just do it twice. There's persistent foolishness on his part. He related it again, this time not just to his fathers, to his, uh, to his brothers, but to his father as well. And his father rebuked him. Now, you have to understand, right here we have God saying that what I've said about this being a violation of the cultural norm, about it being insulting, it'd be like your child saying, I'm the ruler in this house now. Remember, Jacob or Israel loved Joseph more than any of the brothers. He made him a special coat. But what does he do here? He rebuked him. You see, this was not proper conduct. This was not proper behavior. This was chutzpah. This was cheekiness. This was prideful on Joseph's part. And said, what is this dream? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? God is sovereign over familial dysfunction. Here it's fraternal, brothers, dysfunction. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. His brothers were jealous of him. Some of you might have family problems with adult siblings, a brother or sister. God is sovereign even over that. Could he stop it? Yes. But he is doing what is right. He is going to turn what the enemy meant for evil, he's going to turn it into good. He's going to bring good and his glory and your blessing out of it, just like he will do with Joseph. Let's see God's sovereignty over the evil done against us. God is sovereign even over evil that may come upon us when we are obedient, when we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. His brothers went to pasture their father's flock. Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock? I will send you to them. And he said, I will go. And he said to him, go now, bring back word to me. See, Joseph had already tattled on his brothers once, so now Jacob wanted, hey, you know, do it again if you find anything wrong. Go now, bring, back, bring word back to me. So he sent him. Joseph was doing what his father had wanted him to do. Joseph was obedient. And yet, God was going to allow Joseph to be almost murdered, to be thrown into a pit and sold as a slave. Even when he was obedient, you would think, oh, he was obedient. Certainly it's going to turn out to be great. God's going to bless him as a result of that. He stopped that foolishness. He's being obedient to his father. He didn't say, oh, no, 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 dad, you're bowing down to me. You go check on my brothers and bring word back to me. He didn't do that. He was rebuked, and he does what is right. And yet, even in doing what is right, evil was going to come upon him. Evil coming upon your life as an individual or the life of this family, this church family, <clears throat> is not an indication 
that there is not obedience. Evil coming upon you is not necessarily an indication that you're disobedient, that you're out of God's will, as some people phrase it. God is sovereign and can even allow evil to be planned against us while we are obedient. God is sovereign even over plots against us. Before the evil even happens, if there is a plot made against us, no weapon formed against us will prosper. We sang words to that effect this morning. God is sovereign even over plots against us. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them. They saw him from a distance, and they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. They wanted to see, how are his dreams going to come true if he's dead? See, they didn't have the faith that Abraham had. Hebrews tells us that Abraham was ready to slay Isaac because he believed that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. These brothers didn't have that faith of their ancestor. Oh, let's put him to death. That's the end of his dreams. They plotted against him. God is sovereign, and he allows that. Do you think God could not have stopped this? We're going to see that God stopped their plan. And throughout these messages, we'll see how God shows himself sovereign in turning what the enemy meant for evil he turned into good. God's sovereignty can intervene in totally unexpected ways. You would never expect, and I'll explain why, that God's sovereignty would intervene in this way. The brothers said, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Rehobain heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. He is the oldest brother. He is going to carry on the family name. He is the one who's going to inherit the most. He had the most to gain from the death of Joseph, and he had the most to lose if Joseph's dream came true and everyone bowed down to him. You never would have expected that it would have been Rehobain. You would have expected that it would have been one of the younger brothers who, well, you know, I'm just getting this tiny little bit of inheritance while my oldest brother is carrying on the name and getting most of it. God can intervene in the most unexpected ways using people that you would never expect, using means that you would never imagine he can use, God can use them to intervene in trials in your life. God's sovereignty can rescue us at any point whatsoever. Rehobain said, shed no blood, throw him into this pit in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him. He said this that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. When Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they're going to throw him in a pit. God could have rescued Joseph before he was in the pit. God could have rescued Joseph before he first fell into their hands, and he stripped them. Uh, they stripped him 
of his tunic. But God didn't. God can rescue at any point. And Rehoboam's plan is to rescue him out of the pit and restore him. Now we know from our brother Joe reading the chapter that that plan is going to fail. But there is an eldest son, one whose goings forth have been from eternity past, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He had a plan, and he was part of a plan to rescue a sin-darkened world, the people in it. He came from heaven, took upon himself the form of man, lived a perfect, sinless, holy life, became God's Passover lamb, sacrificed on the cross, bearing the sins of the world in his body. He shed his precious blood, and he died to provide salvation to the world, to all who would turn to him for rescue. He will lift you out of the pit raise you up and restore you. The scripture says your sins have made a separation between you and your God. Jesus Christ bore the sins of the world in his body. He paid the penalty for sin. He satisfied the holiness of God. And he can restore you to a right relationship with God if you would turn to him and call on him to save you, he will. He can rescue you at any point in your life. But the scripture says it's appointed unto men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. Not a second chance, the judgment. He can be your savior now, or he will be your judge in eternity. I I urge you, I, I can't stress this enough. Please turn to him and be saved. Call on him. Let him lift you out of that pit of your sin and restore you to God into a right relationship with the Heavenly Father. Do that. You'll never regret it. God's sovereignty actually not only allows plots, but it actually allows evil to come upon us. God is in control still. This evil doesn't take God by surprise. He actually allows it. When Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Our Father in heaven, when it comes to his children, is too loving to ever do anything unkind and too wise to make a mistake. This was no mistake. This was not unkind. It would seem it from Joseph's perspective, from our perspective, reading it now, but that's reading it divorced from the rest of the unfolding drama of redemption. This low point, and it'll get even lower for Joseph. 
these low points, God turns to good and brings himself glory and blesses Joseph as a result. God wants to take the evil that comes upon us and turn it for good, just as he did in Joseph's life. God's sovereignty can alter the worst of plans against us. They plan to kill him. And uh, while they're planning uh, to kill him, what better way to kill him than on a full stomach? They sat down to eat a meal. And they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt. So Judah, the fourth-born brother, uh, the youngest son of Leah, Judah said, what profit is it for us to kill our brother? <laughs> He's the practical one, thinking about money. Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. I mean, does his ears hear what his mouth is saying? He's their brother. We're not going to kill him. We're just going to sell him as a slave and forget about him. We don't care what happens. Does that make any sense? I mean, just hearing those words, he should have uh, uh, come to his senses and said, oh, no, no, we, we can't do this. But his brothers are like him, looking to make a quick buck. And his brothers listen to him. God's sovereignty ensures that his plan will come to pass. They had originally planned to kill him, but God's plan was that they don't kill him. And he uses their continued evil to sell him to bring about his plan. They pulled Joseph up. They lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. God is ensuring through the greedy sin of the brothers that Joseph would not die, that Joseph would be used of God in an amazing way in Egypt to rescue his wicked brothers, his father, and their entire family. Stephen, in his testimony, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, in his testimony before the Jewish ruling body, the Sanhedrin, He's recounting the story of the Old Testament, of the unfolding drama of redemption. And he says at this point, the patriarchs, the the brothers, became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him. That's inspired commentary on Joseph's life. God was with Joseph every single step of the way. Brothers and sisters, God is with you. No matter what happens in your life, what loss you experience, what tragedy comes upon you, what trial or tribulation, what persecution, what family dysfunction you might be experiencing, God is with you. His children. If you are a child of God, he is with you, just as he was with Joseph. Never doubt that. Nothing will ever be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's sovereignty over sorrow, even the sorrow, the heartache, the pain that family dysfunction causes. God, there's God's sovereignty even over 
the sorrow that our own sin causes. Rehoboam returned to the pit, and Joseph was not in the pit. He tore his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, the boy is not there. And then we see his real heart and focus coming out. As for me, where am I to go? I'm the oldest. I'm responsible for everything that happens when we're out here. What answer am I going to give to my father? I can't go back there. Where am I to go? I can't tell him that his favorite son is not alive any longer, isn't here any longer. Rehoboam did not have the courage to speak up and as the eldest in the family tell his brothers, look, we're not going to kill him. Instead, perhaps in fear of his own life, if they're willing to kill the favorite son, they might kill me. And then Simeon is the eldest, and he'll inherit and carry on the family's name. Fear is never a reason to sin against God. God understands. He understands fear. He understands all our weaknesses. He remembers our frame that we are but dust, but it's never an excuse. Rehoboam should have spoken up and told him, no, we're not going to do this. Instead, perhaps out of fear, he has his own plan to rescue Joseph out of the pit. He's clearly thinking of himself, where am I to go? And that's probably what motivated him not to speak up, thinking of himself, lest they also try to kill him. God's sovereignty over sorrow that others' plans cause in our life. It's bad enough that our own sin sometimes causes us sorrow, but others' sin can cause us sorrow as well. So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Please examine it to see if it is your son's tunic or not. This is their plan. It's going to cause pain to Jacob. Yet God is sovereign over that. God didn't stop them from carrying out their wicked plan that God knew would bring sorrow into Jacob's life. God is sovereign over other sin that causes pain in our life. He examined it. Jacob examined it, and he said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast devoured him. So Jacob tore his clothes and put, on, put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. God allowed this sorrow. God knows that it would be for the best, that it would bring him the most glory, and it would result in the greatest good possible to Jacob. Had this not happened, they would have starved to death during that seven-year famine in the land if this didn't happen. It looks to be terrible. It looks to be awful. What kind of God allows others to cause you so much pain? And yet without this pain, there never would have been the refuge in Egypt from the famine. It would have, they would have died. And then we'd be saying, what kind of God lets his child Jacob and his entire family die? God's way is always the best way.
This was God's way. And it resulted in blessing for Jacob and his entire family, even the brothers that sold Joseph into slavery. God is sovereign even over inconsolable sorrow. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. He said, surely I will go down to Sheol, to the grave in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. God knew of this sorrow. He couldn't be consoled. The rest of his family, all of them together, did not matter as much to him as Joseph did. Sometimes God has to allow that inconsolable sorrow to come upon us. Clearly, Jacob's love for Joseph was misguided in the degree, not in the placement, but in the degree of that love, that he loved him more. And God had to take from Jacob that which he loved the most in order for Jacob to be blessed later on, Jacob and his entire family. God is sovereign over everything that happens to us in our life. The last verse of the chapter. The Ishmaelites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar. Probably over a million Egyptians. And yet, it's to Potiphar. What are the odds? A million to one. The long shot. And yet, this is the person that Joseph is sold to. Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard, those who protected Pharaoh. This man had an in with Pharaoh. God is sovereign even over that. Think of all the different people who might have bought Joseph. But it was Potiphar. God is sovereign over everything, even these little incidental details. And the same thing in your life and mine. God is sovereign over those. He allows them. He brings them to pass. He allows some to come to pass. Every event, every little detail, nothing is incidental. It is all part of his plan. And it wouldn't be his plan if any of them were missing from our life. Stephen again says, God was with him and rescued him, as we'll see in the coming messages, from all his afflictions. Here he rescued him from being murdered. He rescued him from that pit, and he will end up granting him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh. If not for being sold to Potiphar, how would he have been granted favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh? In conclusion, in Genesis 37, we've seen that God is revealed as the sovereign God who can even use evil to set the stage for his glorious plan. And again, please take this lesson home with you that God intends to bring good even out of all the bad things that happen to you in your life. He will turn them for good. So let me challenge you. In closing, today, will you begin to understand that God is sovereign over everything that enters your life? Will you see everything 
as coming from God. God knows what he's doing. You and I, we don't always know what he's doing. We can't understand his plan. His ways and his thoughts are so far above ours. But will you understand that everything that enters your life comes from God? He's sovereign over all of it. And today, will you begin to realize that even that which appears to be evil, God will turn to good? doesn't matter what it is that's entered your life or will about to enter your life. God can turn it to good. He gives us beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. Why? That we might be trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you so much that you are the sovereign God. We thank you for opening our eyes to view our life in a new way. That it is you who is in control over everything. And we thank you. That is such a great comfort that there's nothing that's come upon us or will come upon us that takes you by surprise. That you're aware of it all. And that whatever is meant for evil against us in this fallen world, you can turn to good. And we thank you for that. And we thank you that you are such a loving God. Oh, dear God, uh, as we go from this place, may it be that our hearts are uplifted, that we sing your praises, and that we trust in you and truly believe that you know what you are doing. Bring yourself glory, we pray, through the lives that we live. For your name's sake, amen.